Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the We Are One podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like We Are One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything We Are One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. Hey, thanks for tuning in to another Extensions. Um, if you're like new for the first time, this is where I take the book of Acts and I'm just shredding it to pieces, breaking it down, going deeper. I'm learning so much. It's like I gave my life to Jesus when I was four. I'm 35 now. So living for Jesus for 31 years, growing up in church, my fourth generation pastor didn't plan it that way. I've heard a lot of sermons. And myself, I've even preached about the book of chapters and stories and characters from the book of Acts a lot. But i just been learning so much this year. And I think they always say like what, like knowledge is power or whatever the phrase is. It's like, yes, I absolutely believe that. But there's something about when finally you are excited to dive deep into something and you get that inside of you. It's like one of the things we said this year with Keep Us Dangerous is that, uh, the word dangerous, the O is origin. We're going back to the origin. I was thinking about this. I've devoted my life as a, as a preacher and a teacher of the word to continually go back to the origin to find out the story of everything that happened. Because if I can learn that, if God did it once, why can't he do it again? So I like have literally devoted my life. All the attention has gone to studying these texts, studying the scripture, in this case, studying the book of Acts so that it can become so applicable to us today. And I'll tell you, we're like, we're seeing right now a day of just miracles signs and wonders, gifts of the Spirit, we're seeing, we're seeing Jesus show up. And so if you're just tuning in right now, I'm really excited for this week because I just preached a message. <laughs> I feel dumb even saying the title, but it has to be done. Uh, I just preached a message called Blind Faith and Booty Cheeks. <laughs> That's what it's called. I don't know why. I probably shouldn't have, but I did. That's what it's called now. I said it. It happened. Uh, you'll have to watch the message. <laughs> you'll have to go listen to it. Figure out. I encourage you. If you're somebody who usually podcasts and you're listening to these, you need to go watch it because it will make a whole lot more sense uh, what's taking place in the room. But I was preaching about uh, recently, and this whole extension is coming off of that, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus or who we knew now we know, found out, became the Apostle Paul. So at this point, just like a disclaimer, if I say Saul or Paul at any point, I mean the same person. Um, and I'll talk about this later, but it's Acts 13 for the first time we see him referenced as Paul. But in this point, I want to really dive in primarily, and I'll have some other texts that will come into it in Acts chapter 9 to show his conversion, uh, maybe help us understand a couple interesting things, some things that will maybe help even reveal God's scripture for our personal lives a little bit more, and we'll dive in. But I think something you got to know out of the gate is Saul of Tarsus, or the Apostle Paul, he has this conversion in Acts chapter 9, but it's not the last time it's talked about. And I think this is important for us to catch right away. Three times in the book of Acts alone, right? And then you can even look in Galatians chapter 1. It's referenced again with a few more details. Paul continually tells his story. So he has the story in Acts 9. The author Luke records it. He talks about it again in Acts 22, 
and Acts 26, and it's referenced in Galatians 1, and there's other writings that kind of connect it all together. And I think this is so important for us to understand because in, in Acts 1, 8, Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. There's just something about when you have an encounter with Jesus, you got to talk about it. Like, it shouldn't be a one-time thing. Uh, for me, it's like my testimony, right? The witness, we say a testimony is like my story of what Jesus did in my life. I gave my life to him at four, but that's not the last time I have a testimony. I can tell you there's like pivotal moments in my life where I've encountered God. Even in, in my personal journey, the things that I've walked through, where these last number of years, probably the hardest years of my life, and they now are my current testimony I'm living in. But there will be other years where I walk through new things and I'll have a new testimony. So here, you see in the book of Acts 9, 22, 26, Galatians, you know, writings, Paul can't stop talking about his encounter with Jesus on what scripture refers to as the road to Damascus. Well, let me say it this way. I think I hear a lot of preachers do that. Scripture does not actually refer to it. We've called it the road to Damascus. It talks about he's on a road. It talks about he's headed towards Damascus, and we obviously put it all together, and we've popularized the term as the road to Damascus. But actually, nowhere in Scripture does it come right out and say that it's the road to Damascus. And I, I talk about this a little bit in Blind Faith and Booty Cheeks, if you're going to go tune into that, figure out what that's all about. But what I want to break down for you, I, I was really searching, like, what is this actual road? Like, road to Damascus? Is that what the name is called? Or did we just kind of create a term to kind of describe what Paul's up to? So on Saul's journey, him not knowing, he's going to become Paul eventually, but on his journey. He's actually on a road that was called the uh, Neblis, ne Neblis, Neblis, there it is, Neblis Road. That's how you pronounce it. He's on the Neblis Road, and it's an ancient road north that went from the walls that were around Jerusalem to the gate of Damascus. And so if you, if you watch the message, I'll just give you this to connect it in case you weren't the person that stopped the recording to this point to go watch it. 135-mile um, journey. Took him like six days. And so he's as he's on this road, the, the Nablus road, he's going from the wall, leaving the walls of Jerusalem, and he's heading towards the gate of Damascus. But we know, obviously, if we've read scripture, he doesn't actually make it. Jesus encounters him. We'll get to that here in a second. But what I want to bring to you is, in, this is interesting, in 1842, a German scholar by the name of Otto uh, Thinius, he discovered and purposed that the Nablus road that led from Damascus to Jerusalem, it's actually connected in Jerusalem to the garden tomb. What's that? The tomb that Jesus was laid in. Isn't this uh, crazy? So it was called the garden tomb because Mary Magdalene is there. And maybe, remember she even goes, um, you know, sir, where, you, where have you put him? Thinking that he's just the gardener. And then he goes, Mary. And she's like, Rabbi. And she realizes it's Jesus. So the garden tomb, because Jesus is not the gardener, but he was right there. There's like a garden outside of it on a tomb. It's really interesting, though, how this is broken down, this, this, this German scholar, um, Otto Theanus. It's interesting because the Nablus road, it goes from, you know, whether you're going to Jerusalem to Damascus or Damascus to Jerusalem, as let's say if you're going from Damascus to Jerusalem, you're coming on in, and there was like it kind of like would have little like alleyways and stuff. And it connects right to the point where just as we read about in scripture, right? 
um, the Apostle John, he writes in the book of John, he describes Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This same German scholar in 1842, he discovered and then he continued to push this idea that this road connected right to all of that location, that there was this huge rock wall, this cliff that looked just like a skull. On the top of it is where Jesus was crucified. On the bottom of it is where Jesus was buried. And this road, isn't it incredible? Jesus knew the road because he, he had been connected to it pretty well, right? And he knew where to encounter Saul of Tarsus. So on this exact road where Saul is going now to persecute Christians that follow this Jesus because he died at the location, was buried and rose again at the location of this same road. Crazy when you put it all together. He encounters Saul of Tarsus. And at this moment when he's encountered, everything's about to change. Let me read you scripture, just set it up a little bit on the, uh, the Nebles road. Uh, I'll go Acts 9 verses 3 to 5. As he neared Damascus, this is Saul of Tarsus or Paul, right? On his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. So he doesn't even know for sure it's Jesus, but he knows he's in the presence of a Lord. Not just a Lord, the Lord, right? The, the Lord of Lords, Scripture refers to Jesus as. But I want to clarify this because I think some people could, because there's this bright blinding light and all this some stuff, some stuff, people could be like, man, what an amazing vision that, that he had here. Because Paul had visions. He had a vision where it says he was taken up to the third heaven. And then even describes it like, whether it was real or just a vision, I don't even know because it, you know, it's so real. Realistic visions are very much a thing from God. You can see in the book of Revelation, right? The apostle John has this vision of Jesus. And he says, when I had this vision, I literally fell as though dead to the ground. And, and Jesus said, I'm alive. And because it, it was so real, and he recorded it, and that's what we read in the book of Revelation. But I want to make it clear that Paul's moment right now with Jesus, it's not a vision. This was not Paul receiving a, re a revelation from Jesus. This was him receiving a revelation of Jesus. It wasn't some just vision or thought or something that helped him better understand. No, he saw him face to face. He encountered him on the same, on the same road that was connected to where his death and resurrection took place. He encountered him. So where Saul is on the way to kill more Christians, he ends up, if you know the story, becoming one as he has a true revelation and encounter with Jesus. Now the gospels describe this, right? Where Jesus goes into the room, shows himself to uh, the apostles. He shows himself to the women at the tomb. I referenced Mary. Later, Thomas comes up. And he's like, look at the, the nail holes in my, in my uh, hands, my feet, my side, all this stuff. And Thomas is like, okay, I believe now. This, the the uh, gospels reference that. But also I want to read to you here in 1 Corinthians, it does as well. And the apostle Paul wrote this after he's had this encounter been completely changed. And he's describing the 40 days, if you didn't know this, from the time that Jesus uh, resurrected to the point he ascended, he walked the earth for 40 days. From the time he ascended to Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit descended, it was 10 more days. So 50 days from Passover when Jesus died to Pentecost, one of the, the Feast of Weeks, when the Holy Spirit came. So within that 40 days before he ascended, I'm going I'm to read you what uh, the Apostle Paul said here about after his resurrection. Chapter 15, verse 5 to 8. Paul said that he appeared to Cephas, 
Now that is Peter. And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, meaning at the time he wrote it, they were alive and serving Jesus. They're obviously dead now. Though some have fallen asleep. Yeah, they asleep. they dead for sure now. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Meaning, uh, Paul calls himself a lot of times, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Meaning, at the point that everybody else was walking with Jesus, he definitely was living a different life. Then finally, when Jesus now ascends, the Holy Spirit shows up. People are living for him, spreading, witnessing like crazy. They're multiplying, increasing in numbers. He now wants to kill them. So he's saying, after Jesus appeared to me, I'm one abnormally born because Jesus said you have to be born again. It happened for me very different how I encountered him. But he said, I am the last one that Jesus appeared to. It wasn't just a vision. It was in person. With a blinding light that blinded Paul's eyes, he sees Jesus. It's crazy. Face to face, he's the last one to see him. Which You know why this was so important? Why the Apostle Paul, he said, I'm the least of the apostles, but, I mean, let's read the scriptures. He did the greatest work of all the apostles. And I love the humility of, of Paul, just to be like, I'm the least of the apostles. But what's so crazy about it is the next time we see Paul show up is in Acts 13. Acts 13, which I'll talk about at a later time, is when he finally launches his ministry as an apostle to do missionary work, build churches, plant churches, develop uh, leaders and pastors and all this kind of stuff that he did. You got to imagine that this moment that he references in 1 Corinthians 15, and then we see it referenced that Luke wrote about in Acts 9, it marked his apostleship. Before he ever actually became an apostle, he was already marked to be an apostle. Encountering Jesus, he's the last one face to face. But the thing I want to come to uh, about this moment in Acts 9, that I think is a question we all have to really consider. If, if you're going to live for Jesus for the long haul, I have a four-year-old son. He gave his life to Jesus uh, one year ago, roughly around this, the time of this recording. And we were talking about this idea of, you're young, buddy. You got to live for Jesus for the rest of your life. And you, he, he, you could tell he was kind of perplexed by that thought. Like, I don't know if I can do that. He, he, he kind of almost like questioned for a moment, like, he goes, that's a long time. Like, we're trying to explain the idea of time. See how we're older? And then look at Papa, you know, his, his, his grandpa. And then you look at, we call him Big Papa, his great-grandfather. He's 90, turning 93, right? It's like a lifetime for Jesus is going to require some strength that you do not have on your own. So my question is, for you, for me, and let's look at Paul's life. Where do you get that kind of strength? To follow Jesus for all of your days. Let's remember what scripture says. It says that after he was led by hand into Damascus, he's blind. He's led humbly by hand into Damascus. Remember then God sent a follower of Jesus named Ananias to come to his house. Let's read what it says, Acts 9.17. Then Ananias went to the house, which was Judas's house on Straight Street, it's described as. And he entered it, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, I love that. I've, I've preached about that in the message, Blind Faith and Booty Cheeks, but I love that. Brother Saul, there's something about just the recognition as the, in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me, I want you to catch this, 
so that you might see again. And that's great. That's, that, was, that was great. But that wasn't the, the biggest thing that happens right here. That you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this guy that was persecuting Christians that were going and spreading the message of Jesus like crazy. Why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they had the power to be witnesses. He now is receiving that same power. And I want to break this down because I feel like this is an area where a lot of people can get confused when it comes to this idea of either two ways we'll say it, the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to connect here this encounter that Saul of Tarsus, Paul, has in Acts 9 with what happened when the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit is active and moving today. I've experienced him for myself. I've seen his power on other people. So when you're reading the book of Acts, there's uh, like three main chapters that a lot of people will try to use to really defend this idea of people are filled with the Holy Spirit and then they can speak in other tongues at the same time. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. Those are the three chapters that people will primarily use to try to put together this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. But could I just broaden our horizons a little bit? Because Acts 8 as well in Samaria says that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, but there's no reference to a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Manifestation would be mean like the evidence or a move of the Holy Spirit. Something happened, right? There's gifts and a gift comes of the Holy Spirit out when you're filled, but it doesn't record anything. So a lot of times people will discredit and be like, well, it says you're filled. What does that, you know, what does that even mean? Uh, okay, so you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, but you're not going to actually then manifest a gift. You're not going to speak in tongues or something if you're filled. You can be filled without manifestation happening is what they would say. Because we see it in Acts 2, 10, and 19, but we don't see it in Acts 8. But could we just attach some different texts together and make, a, make an argument? This is how I interpret Scripture. And this is how, as I've studied, God's revealed this to me. Now, I talk more about this idea of receiving the Holy Spirit in general, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I preached a message called The Promise of Power that you can watch or The Product of Power, which is another extension that attaches those two together. But what I want to do, is I want to look at this idea of Acts 8, where it says they're filled, but it doesn't say a manifestation. And then let's look at Acts chapter 9 that we're in right now. Because clearly, we just read it. It said that Ananias comes so that he might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So my question is, let's say if there needs to be a manifestation, if our, if our argument is there needs to be a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in order to actually say that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit or born of the Spirit, if that needs to take place, then why isn't, why isn't Saul speaking in tongues? Why isn't he speaking in this heavenly native language? Why isn't he speaking in tongues? So I'm no expert on this, so I'm going to try my best to break it down. And can I just say this? Nobody's an expert but God. The thing about being a, a theologian or a, a historian and in, in, in biblical you know, text and all that, or a scholar, God reveals great things to us, but in the end, there's just so much that we just don't know. There's just so much that God has to reveal. So I want to show you right here and, and kind of make the point clear of how we could connect Acts 8 and 9 to make some sort of proof 
of that, that there, if you're filled, if you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, there needs to be an evidence. What did Paul write when he became the apostle later? He wrote to the church at Corinth. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 18, what did he say? He said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I, I like that. It's almost like a little challenge. Like, listen, I pray in tongues all the time. You didn't keep up with me? I, I kind of li- I like that kind of competitive. I love sports. I love that competition. Like, people are in tongues a lot. I'm going to pray in tongues more. And this has been a year for me that I've prayed in, been praying in tongues more than any time in my life. Just really allowing the Holy Spirit to work through me, through this gift that he's given me. What he's referencing here in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, right? I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Is a personal prayer language and a personal time of prayer and worship with God. He's not referring to a public moment of worship, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 really aligns up, sets out gifts and how there, you know, there's public moves of it. And there's other writings as well. And I wanted to clarify to show you the next verse here in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 14. He continues, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Then he says, but in the church, now he's talking about a public time of worship. I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So to go back to verse 18, what he's doing is he's making it clear that verse 18 is referencing the power of personal prayer with God through speaking in tongues. The power of a personal time of worship. He's not referring to what would be referred to as, like in, in 1 Corinthians 12, like a message of tongues that then requires that person or someone else, he writes, to interpret what was just said. Uh, for 1 Corinthians 12 are all the gifts, and there's other references I'm not giving you right now, but he's referring to a, a private prayer language, something that's used just as a, or maybe I'll pray in tongues where other people are there and worship, whatever, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of worship for me. It's an act of prayer. It's not me saying, hey, everyone listen, I'm giving a message in tongues, and now someone in, interpret, which is what he's alluding to in verse 19. He's saying, like, when you're in public, a message of tongues is great, but it'd be actually better that you speak five intelligible words to instruct somebody, which is prophecy, refers to that another time, than 10,000 words in tongues. So what's, what's the point? Why did I point to 1 Corinthians 14, 18? Well, because clearly as we read this, Paul is referencing to the fact that he's speaking in tongues, which means at some point in order to speak in tongues, he needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's just make it simple. We just read in Acts chapter 9 that he's baptized with, filled with, whatever, however, with the Holy Spirit. So I guess this kind of could open up our world a little bit. This could give us some new thoughts to chew on because some people go, well, there's no manifestation in chapter 8. Do we know for sure? that there was no manifestation of the Spirit that occurred after that at some point? Because we just found out in Acts chapter 9 that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't say in that moment he manifested, right? But just because it doesn't say it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, I, I speak in tongues all the time. You should do it too. So my thing is, in Acts 8, where it doesn't show there was speaking in tongues, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I'd also say it doesn't mean that it did, because if you look at Acts 16, um, it, it says, 
it says, uh, or Acts 19, let me say it correctly, Acts 19, it says that they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So what I'd say is, and this is my take on scripture. There's some that would say you have to speak. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues to prove you're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what I'd say. If you've been baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit, you will manifest a gift of the Spirit. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There will be something from the Holy Spirit that is going to come out of you. And you look in the case of, of, of Acts 19, it was tongues, but it was also prophecy. How are you going to know that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit if you never show off a gift from the Holy Spirit from you? How are you going to know? How is, how is honestly anybody going to know? And so as I begin to look at this moment here, it says that after Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, now I want to break this last thought down maybe to somebody, if you're either newer to the faith or this will be just like a, a fun revelation to end with here. But we should pursue the Holy Spirit, by the way. You should be filled with the Holy Spirit. God has gifts for you. But let me just kind of end with this thought. After he's filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in Acts 9, I'll go back to now Acts 18 and 19. Immediately, something like scales, remember like Ananias is praying for him, and something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, meaning water baptized. He had just been filled with the Holy Spirit, so spirit baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. You, you look at that phrase you see here. Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. So it's theorized that this is a reference to the scales that are on the eyes of a snake, that they're bringing a correlation here. See, snakes, they have clear scales on their eyes. And when a snake is getting ready to shed their skin, those scales get really cloudy. And as they're shedding, they go, they go blind. They can't see. Just like we see here the reference with the Apostle Paul, with, with Saul of Tarsus. He's blind. And so until they shed that skin, they can't see. But after they shed that old skin, they can now see. What happened with, what happened with Saul? He was this old person not following Jesus. He encountered Jesus. He went blind, just like as the skin is shedding the cloudy eyes of the snake. And when he was, had his hands laid on him after he encountered Jesus, before he could see, he could see. While he was still blind, he could finally see, see Jesus in all of his glory. See that Jesus is the Lord. See that Jesus is the only one worth living for. And then, hands laid on his eyes, water baptized, ate some food to feel a little better because he hadn't eaten in three days. And the scales, it literally references, and something like scales fall from Saul's eyes. What was this a picture of? This moment that Luke records where he's being healed, what is this a picture of? Saul's old skin coming off and him becoming changed and a new person for Jesus. This is why he wrote Later on, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. The old skin is off. A new skin is here. The old life is gone. The new life has come. The old person I used to be, I get to be a new person in Jesus. 
I want to encourage somebody listening right now. Jesus has so many great plans for you. He has so many great things in store for you. If you would be willing, if you would be willing to let him come and encounter you, he's waiting, he's ready, he's wanting to open up your life to encounter Jesus, you will shed the old skin and you'll have a brand new life in Jesus, a life that you, right now, you could never possibly imagine. Ananias would have never imagined that Saul of Tarsus would become the Apostle Paul. I imagine at the time, Saul of Tarsus never knew he could become the Apostle Paul. There's a great life in store for you following Jesus. He said, I've come to give you life, life to the fullest. Shed the old skin. Let the scales fall off. See Jesus today. The beauty is you don't just get to see him. You get to see Jesus and see like him. God, I just pray for somebody listening right now. Don't know their walk of life. Don't know who found this or if somebody shared this around or how it met somebody. But Lord, you, just like you did on that, that Nablus road and um, the road to Damascus, we call it, right? With Saul of Tarsus, you encounter us. And however you might want to encounter someone today, I thank you for the life of who's listening right now. I pray that you'd encounter them today. Pray that the love of Jesus would come upon them, that your mercy would be shown to them, but I ask that you'd show them in power through your Holy Spirit really what their life could be made of. If they'd receive in fullness, not only you, Jesus, but after they receive you, they might be water baptized and then be spirit baptized, just like the Apostle Paul, to walk in power, to be used for your glory. Anoint somebody listening right now for great things. Use them for great things. We love you, Jesus. Thanks for this time together. Amen. I love y'all.